Hello again, it's me, Phil Ryan, yes, with another Story Hive podcast. And as we often say, we're the home of amazing audio stories, it's kind of like our little tagline. But we really want people to understand that an audio story is also a real story, so it was originally written. So again, coming in the next couple of months on our main um, website, we're probably going to drop some of the real stories so you can even download them to have a read at home. However, let's get to the chase. As per normal, it's that three-story selection. So the first one today is actually, well, we think it's a very interesting one because it's actually called Gino's Story and it's from the collection of September in Rome. So go on a trip with Gino. Happy listening. The hotel lobby was freezing, the air conditioning at full blast. The September heat outside, unbearable. Gino stood behind the reception desk and he glanced at the clock. They had a large party arriving in half an hour and he sipped his coffee appreciatively. He'd been at the Hotel Colosseo three years now. It was his first manager's position and he nodded to Namembi, the new porter. The man was very efficient and, best of all, eager to please. The phone rang and Carlotta answered it. Hotel Colosseo, how can I help you? She was gorgeous. He stared at his feet. Carlotta had joined them just one month ago, a transfer from one of their sister hotels. Marie, the old receptionist, leaving to emigrate to Australia of all places. But now it was Carlotta. And he adored her. Not, not, not that he ever showed it. The huge poster with Welcome to Rome dominated the far wall, and he suddenly studied it intently. He often did that. Anything to avoid staring at Carlotta. He loosened his tie. It was a new shirt, and he could feel the collar cutting into his neck. His friends had commented about his weight recently, but he couldn't help it. It wasn't as if he was huge. He was just well padded. It had come upon him suddenly. Last year he'd been a large, and this year he was a nearly extra large. But he was working on it, and thankfully the hotel gym was quiet in the middle of the afternoon, so he'd been making use of it. Although he couldn't see a difference quite yet. But he'd cut right down on cakes, he'd stopped eating pizza late at night, he lived alone, and being ever mindful of costs, he made most of his own food. It was cheaper and better. But he did like to cook. It was a passion. It had started with his aunt. Her husband owned the Ristorante de Roma, fine food at its best. And seeing her nephew's love of eating, she'd coached him in the finer culinary arts. His flair for cooking, evident, He'd even gone to catering college, but in part due to his father and his uncle's prodding, he'd concentrated on hotel management, and he'd got top marks. He could quote the training manual. In fact, it was almost his Bible. Papa and Uncle Giovanni had been right. Management. It was more responsible, not to mention better paid, but his aunt's lessons had stayed with him.
and despite his diploma in hotel management, it was food that still made his soul soar. The market at Campio di Fiori, now his favourite haunt, next to the Mercato di Testaccio, which was near where he lived, cooking now his hobby, not his profession. Carlotta called out to him and pointed. A large, sleek coach had pulled up, outside, the new party booking. They were early, and fixing a bright smile onto his face, Gino went to greet the new guests. They were German, very organised and polite, and their tour leader was a very stunning young blonde woman who kept making little jokes. He didn't understand most of them, but laughed anyway, and she seemed to like this. Mbembe darted around, hauling cases, his bright, happy smile infectious, until the lobby felt like a very happy place, full of happy people. And Carlotta efficiently entered all the guest's details, her beautiful face so calm and studied. Gino tried not to look at her. His heart thumped in his chest. Carlotta. He loved it when everything worked so well. It filled him with personal and professional pride. And in no time at all, 40 guests had all been checked in, given key cards and directed to their rooms. They looked like spenders, he thought, all well-dressed, their clothes clearly expensive. Gino mentally rubbed his hands together. The company was offering a bonus scheme on breakfasts this month. Managers who consistently filled their breakfast room were eligible for a weekly €100 bonus. And judging by the tour leader's comments, they'd be taking up the special €10 breakfast offer. He smilingly praised both Carlotta and Nemembi for their excellent work, and everyone smiled. A happy workplace was a good workplace. Rule number 25 in the manual. He'd bought the book a month earlier. It was called The Life Manual. Gino had bought the book after watching an interview on television. It was full of ways to improve your life, personal and business. It had been written by some American woman. For Gino, was not confident. It was just his way. Competent, not confident, he'd once overheard his father say. And the man knew his son. He needed help. And the book was perfect. It had an answer for everything. Well, almost everything. He just wanted a woman. Someone to share his days with. It wasn't much to ask. He prayed often for it, but if God was listening, he wasn't coming up with the goods. Patience is strength, the book said in Rule 73. Patience. And the thought of meeting someone like the young German woman skipped at the back of his mind. She was very attractive. He glanced down at his tummy. Mm, unlikely, he thought. And before he could stop himself, he sighed heavily. Women. Difficult. He avoided looking directly into Carlotta's eyes. He always did. 
and patting Mambi on the shoulder and his mind now racing with fantasies, he reluctantly headed back to his small office. Paperwork to do, as always. In a way, it was his only relief, and the knowledge that he would be leaving today at six and a night off cheered him up. The next day, he would take the whole day off, his first that month. Francois, the assistant manager, was more than capable of looking after things. But all the same, Gino wrote one of his long and detailed instruction emails. Francois was fine in his own way, very efficient, very French, but still. He was always discounting rooms. A little lost Japanese girl had been one of his latest. He was just too easy with people. And so Gino tapped away at his list. Reminders better than forgetters. Rule 40 in the manual. Those Germans were worth 400 euros to him. And he'd seen a new hand blender he wanted. And so on he worked until eventually it was time to leave. Thankfully, the heat has subsided considerably on his walk back home, and mindful of his new walking regime that evening, he sat on his exercise bike. No gaining without some paining. Rule 70. Salad for dinner, followed by fresh fruit. He'd placed the bike in the middle of the lounge, in front of the television. It was the football and he pedalled his way through three goals, a free kick and a missed penalty before turning in. A quick shower to clean himself until gratefully he lay exhaustedly back on his bed, the soft pillows freshly laundered. But as he lay down to sleep, one image stayed uppermost in his mind. It wasn't the match or the missed penalty, as usual, it was Carlotta. It was terrible. Every day he saw her, he loved her more, but he knew the company rules. No star fraternisation. Not that that was the real problem. What on earth would she want with a man like him? He knew it. He was chubby and short. And she was a goddess. He'd seen the male guests looking at her. She was like a supermodel, tall and leggy, her long brown hair falling about her tanned face. As for her eyes, they were pools of limpid green he drowned in every day. Set in a classical Roman face, he didn't stand a chance with her. It was hopeless and he wriggled around the bed. This was no good. The book wasn't that much help in this department. And he started to think about a new recipe he'd got from one of his magazines, until thankfully exhaustion finally swept over him and he drifted away to sleep. The next morning he woke early, he always did, and he groaned as he stood in the shower. It was a day off. He felt good. He'd agreed to buy some things for his mother, and jumping on the tram, he headed into the city. Rome was busy, 
and the September weather was good today, sunny and bright. The food market was wonderful. It was full of things to look at and buy and taste. Rome was the perfect tourist city. And Gino patiently stood in lines at various stalls and shops, and he emptied his mind. Rule 22. Use your free time to maximise your thoughts. And in under an hour, he completed all his purchases, and shunning the crowded trams of the metro, he purposely set off for home. The walk, part of his exercise strategy. Walking was good. The book said so. Rule 36. And apart from the mugginess in the air and the trams that sailed past, he felt happy, his shirt unfortunately sticking to his back. He glanced at his watch. He had all the time in the world. It was his day off. The streets around were very busy, and he grinned at the antics of the men dressed in centurion costumes by the Colosseum as he passed. Two of them used the hotel's outside bar sometimes. Older men, but still very fit. The oldest centurion still on guard in Rome, they joked. Funny way to earn a living, he'd always thought. But at least they added colour. Plus, they bought a lot of drink, and the hotel guests seemed to like them. Lots of pictures got taken. Although one of their number had recently been murdered, they told him. Nothing surprised Gino. It was Rome, after all. He puffed along, and as he crossed the road at the bottom of the Pacca Opia, he saw the baby buggy. That was odd. A baby buggy, rolling slowly along on its own. That didn't look right. Where was the mother? And then a terrible thought overcame him. Supposing there was a child inside, and he looked around, but no one else was particularly near, and then he saw the woman running. Instinctively, he clutched his shopping bag to his chest and broke into a shambling sprint. The buggy was picking up speed, and he felt the blood now roaring in his head. He, he, he really was out of shape, and plus the shopping seemed to suddenly weigh a thousand kilos, and he dropped it, the buggy reaching a steeper part of the slope, and he could see that on its current path it would be onto the busy road in a second. His mouth was open, and now he was gasping. And the woman was screaming now, screaming, and the buggy was bouncing towards the busy road, traffic roaring by at speed. And it had nearly reached the pavement edge, and with a final effort, Gino flung himself forward, and diving, he grabbed the handle and pulled it to a stop. The impact... <laughs> as he hit the stone pavement, very painful, and he thought his heart would burst, his hand tightly gripping the buggy, and he lay there, momentarily, half stunned. Sweat was dripping down his face, and unsteadily he got to his feet. He was struggling to breathe. The child, he suddenly thought, the child, and turning the buggy around... He reeled back. Instead of a child, there was a small dog in a pink coat. A small dog that now bared its teeth at him and snarled. He, he didn't know what to think. He was stunned. 
But before he could react, the screaming woman arrived, and scooping up the tartan-coated little bundle of fur, she cooed to it. Oh, it's okay, it's okay. Ah. He was still out of breath. What the hell was going on? The woman now thanked him profusely, at the same time as cuddling her pet, and she called him a hero. But he didn't quite hear her, the breath still rasping in his throat. This was crazy. He half waved his hand in acknowledgement at her, and turning, he walked back up the hill and begun collecting his abandoned shopping bags. They looked okay, and the eggs, of course, were broken. Some of the fruit was bruised. Damn, he thought. The woman called out to him, and he turned. She was late for something, she said, but thank you again, my hero, she said. And smiling, she put her small dog back into the buggy and wheeled it away. Gino sighed. His chest hurt, his leg hurt, his body hurt, and it still felt very tight to breathe. And seeing the nearby cafe across the broad street, he stumbled unsteady along to the crossing, his throat dusty and dry. And limping slightly, he slumped at one of the tables. Rest, he thought. Relax, just catch yourself up. He waved at a waiter. Ugh. The man was efficient. The drink came very quickly. Cold. Perfect. And after a minute or two, he began to feel slightly better. But then he glanced down at his clothes. They were filthy. His shirt was covered in dust, his new jeans blooded and torn at the knee a little, from where he dived for the buggy. And now, not to mention a large bruise he could see slowly blooming on his forearm. Fantastic, he thought. Superman saves a dog. He noticed two men at the next table, staring, and they must have just sat and watched the whole thing. And one of them smiled at him and lifted his thumb. He nodded, half smiling back, and then turned away, his breathing still a little ragged. God, he thought, I really am out of shape. Then, to his surprise, he saw the young woman next to the men wave to him. Years later, he remembered those first words she spoke to him as she came over. That was fantastic. You're amazing. And he looked up into her eyes. They were magnified by her very thick glasses, but they were the brightest blue he'd ever seen, and she blinked, her eyes huge behind the lenses. I saw the whole thing. You saved that baby. You should get an award. He tried to look composed, and he caught his breath. She tugged her glasses off, and absent-mindedly rubbed them with a little cloth. And then she sat down. She was so pretty, really pretty. Thick black hair piled high on her head, plump tanned Roman skin. And he tried to speak, but she held up her hand. No, don't say anything. I can see you're going to deny it, but I saw the whole thing. I even saw her holding her baby, alive, and well, and all because of you. Whatever you say, I think you're a hero.
and she reached across the table and took his hand. I wish there were more people in the world like you, so brave, so unselfish. She peered at him, blinking again, her gorgeous eyes magnified by her thick lenses. And he looked at her, and he smiled shyly. Well, it, it was nothing, really. He paused for a moment. When a child's life is at stake, and the rest of his words were drowned out by the noise of a passing tram, and the girl moved closer, her eyes locked on his, her expression adoring. And Gino felt his heart lift and soar. For she was the one, the one he'd always dreamed of. And barely a few thousand metres away, had she but known it, as she sat behind the reception taking someone's credit card details, Carlotta would never be in Gino's mind again. Rome, the city of love. Now that was one lucky guy, huh? Anyway, here's the second story, Fast and Furious, as we like to say. And we think, yes, it is a bit unusual, because this is from a rather different collection we run called Overheard in London. And once you listen to the introduction, you'll understand how that actually story type works. It's actually called Episode 1 and contains a few stories. But as per normal, there's the quick spoiler. You never know who's listening. As a London writer, over the last, well, many years, I've had a really good go at reporting on life in London. I've popped up in books, on the radio and on the television. However, after being asked to come up with a new concept for an online magazine a few years ago, I suddenly found I had a new angle. And it was completely by accident. I was outside a cafe, sitting, having a cup of tea, reading my paper and waiting for a friend when suddenly the guy behind me said to his friend, Yeah, so we've agreed to kill each other if the house prices keep going up. What? Anyway, the rest of the conversation was so bizarre, I got drawn in. I pretended to read my paper, but of course, I was really eavesdropping. And I felt a little bad, but I couldn't help myself. We all do it. We catch those half-snatches of other people's conversations when we're out, in cafes, on buses, on trains. However, after hearing that first conversation, I knew I'd found something. So I figured I'd be more open to those that really caught my ear. And that's when I really started writing what I call my overheards. They're as close as to what I overheard as physically possible. And I'd like to point out, if I had a name, I always changed it to something different when I wrote it down. So I started recording them, either by physically writing them down at the time, or afterwards, quickly tapping some notes into my phone, just to try and remember them. And what I later write is pretty close, and of course I have my notes. It's pretty accurate, I think. Now I have to confess, I often felt like a snooper. A little. In fact, cards on the table, I was a snooper. But sometimes you can't help it, can you? you? You hear a phrase, an expression, and the volume's just loud enough 
to make you eavesdrop. It grabs your attention and it draws you in. Now, I'll admit that sometimes I just get small bits that are interesting, but are just too short. I get a quick burst. It's usually just a single line. And I find mobile phone users are the best for this. I was standing outside Canary Wharf Station when a guy in a very nice suit barked into his phone behind me. It's just a fucking giraffe, Gerald. Just deal with it. Hmm. But then often a full doozy comes along. I was sitting in a cafe off the King's Road in Chelsea when two people, one man in a fancy jogging outfit and the other in a plaid shirt and jeans, came in and sat down behind me. And then I heard this. No, I'm a lousy father. I know, I know it, Rob. But the kids have just got to learn not to rely on anyone, especially me. Plaid shirt guy. You're not that bad, Ben. Jogging guy. Yeah, I am, Rob. I, I'm, I'm singly the lousiest father on the planet. You're being very kind, but it's the truth. I forget the birthdays and tell you the truth. I don't even like Josh. He's a horrible kid. You've seen he's got those little piggy eyes. To tell you the truth, I'm not even sure he's mine. I can barely tolerate Cody, too, and he's only one. They both sipped their coffee, and a long silence fell, until the jogging man said, She's having an affair, I'm sure of it. Plaid shirt man was suddenly very surprised. God, really? You think that, really? Jogging guy. Yeah, it's obvious. She keeps being nice to me. Always glad to see me when I come home, making me coffee. She bought me a new shirt last week. Plaid shirt guy. Christ, I see. You didn't sound convinced. The jogging guy laughed hollowly. I mean, I'm away so much, I can't blame her. It's not nice, you know. I, I, I'm not sure she uses the house. Probably, who, who, who knows? Plaid shirt guy. No, I'm sure you imagine it. Jogging guy. Hmm, maybe. But I just get a sense of it. You know, I, I was gone for two weeks last month. The office needed me back stateside. And she called me, and her voice was funny. You know, like she'd been running or something. Plaid shirt guy. Maybe she'd been running. You know, running to the phone. She could have been upstairs. Jogging guy. Exactly. You see, upstairs. But with who? Plaid shirt man. I think you're imagining it. Jogging guy. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Hmm. Now, I have to point out that this point, all overheards finish exactly, and some drift into just general chit-chat about nothing in particular. And that's what these guys did. But the last thing I heard as they left was this. Jogging guy. Maybe I'll turn gay. Bless you, London. Now, since my light bulb moment when I created this new story, Source, I became so much more attuned when I was out on my travels. And even nowadays, if I'm on my own, I can set my ears to scan, especially in cafes. I guess I've learnt to filter in a way, and then, if I'm lucky, a phrase or a voice reaction somewhere behind me or off to the side catches me. So here's just another quick snatch from a phone encounter. Hampstead, a cinema foyer. Outside, there was a girl around 20 on the phone. Girl. No, you're not listening. 
I only slept with him because he asked. She then listened for what seemed quite a long while, and then she said, Yeah, but he did ask really nicely. Who says romance isn't dead? Anyway, the next proper overheard is from a tea room in Cambridge. I was sitting eating a cake, reading a paper as per normal, and I was facing an empty table for four when a middle-aged man and what was clearly his young teenage daughter came in and sat down. Now, they'd been shopping, judging by their various bags, and she just looked fed up. Middle-aged man in very sensible clothing. Well, I still don't see what's wrong with Turkey again. Your brother loved it last year. Sullen girl. Daddy, it's full of weird, hairy guys staring at me on the beach. You ask Mummy. Middle-aged man. Oh, you're imagining it. Anyway, perhaps they don't see blonde-haired people much. You know, they've all got dark hair there, haven't they? Sullen girl. It's not about my hair, Dad. I'm 14 now. She paused. And I'm... And she whispered this bit really loudly. Getting much bigger, you know, up there. Middle-aged man. What do you mean up there? The sullen girl in exasperation exclaimed, Breasts, Daddy, really big ones. The middle-aged man suddenly sounded shocked. Really? Does Mummy know? Sullen girl. Yes, of course she knows. She keeps buying me these loose T-shirts, but I'm not swimming in T-shirts. Can't we go to an apartment in Portugal like Auntie Gwyn and her lot? Had its own pool and everything, and she said it cost as much as the hotel we stay in. Less even. Middle-aged dad. Really? Cost the same for an apartment? Oh, I think I'll talk to your mother. Well, I'm sorry about your chest issues, darling. The sullen girl suddenly brightened. Don't sweat it, Daddy, I'm not. They look amazing. At this point, a lady I presumed was Mummy appeared, and the middle-aged man said, Oh, hello, darling. Jasmine and I have had a brainwave. Do you fancy Portugal for a holiday this year, just for a change? Mummy. Isn't it all a bit fish-orientated, dear? They then agreed on potentially going back to Turkey or Portugal and talked about nothing but the sales in Marks and Spencers. The daughter went back to texting. OK, that's an overheard. Now, at one point, my wide-open ears were now so finely attuned to this stuff, I had to concentrate to turn them off. And this is one of my usual sharp intake of breath one-liners I grabbed outside Bank Tube Station. There was a huge bodybuilder-shaped guy in a kind of designer shades and leather trousers, and he said loudly into his mobile phone, if I want to bath in custard and champagne, I will, Robin. And I'm not interested listening to your usual passive-aggressive nonsense. You're worse than my mother. Huh? Anyway, the next full overheard involved around ten tourists from Spain. I knew that because they had bright red jackets with a Spania printed on them. And they were having coffee and cake with a tour guide and obvious language teacher in the Crypt Cafe at St Martin's in the Field Church just opposite Trafalgar Square. And I was sitting pretty much in front of them and they arrived, shoved together a few tables. And this actually meant I could kind of watch as well as listen from behind my paper. 
young language guy. Yes, it's silly, isn't it? It's written as Leicester. He enunciated Leicester and then said Leicester slowly and sharply. But it's pronounced as Leicester. A sharp-faced woman replied, But why? Young language guy. Oh, I think it's something to do with the French. The Spanish people muttered to each other, sounding puzzled, and the sharp-faced woman's friend joined in. Oh, so the French people they wrote in English then? Young language guy. Uh, no, no, no it's, it's, it's more the way they influence the way we pronounce things. We've, we've got lots of French words in our language, like we say, um, well, cul-de-sac instead of dead end, for instance. The sharp-faced woman snorted. Why not just say dead end? And this threw the young language guy. Well, I, I, I don't know. We, we just do. The sharp-faced woman's friend laughed. We do to enjoy to speak the English, Simon. But we worry about these strange words. What is... And she carefully pronounced each phrase, turning into pedophile. Pedophile. Young language guy. Oh, uh, where, where, did you, where did you hear that? The sharp-faced Spanish woman's friend piped up. It was on our free paper this morning. It had a picture of a priest. Is, is he famous? Young language guy. Oh, um, no, he's not, he's not famous. It, it means... Um, he took ages to speak. Um, he's not very nice towards children. And the sharp-faced woman interrupted. How you mean? He, he's not very nice. Did he what, shout at them? Please to explain. The whole group now looked at poor Simon with really interesting expressions. Young language guy. And now he really was struggling. Mm, um, uh, it means uh, he uh, uh, holds them uh, too close and often without clothing. He really was struggling. And the expressions on their faces were suddenly a picture. The sharp-faced woman suddenly spoke brightly. Oh, 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 who of us wants uh, more how we say scones with the jam? I don't know what they did for the rest of the day, but I bet they didn't ask for any more new words. Finally, in my last overheard, it was a few weeks after that, and it was another of those bright, sunny London days that's often interrupted by a downpour of rain. Now, thankfully, the rain had finally vanished, leaving a bright blue sky and bright sunshine, and I'd gone into town for some meeting and I'd stopped to take a picture with a great view down a twisting little alleyway in Covent Garden. It was about three in the afternoon. There was an old-fashioned looking Victorian lamppost in black iron with three gleaming bright red phone boxes and it was framed in a kind of shadowy mouth at the bottom of the alleyway. So I went in, walked down the alley and I saw there was a tiny pub halfway down it. And that's where I saw the two guys... They were about in their 50s and they were leaning against the wall with pints in their hands. Now, to me, they both kind of looked South American. They had tan skin, jet black hair, ponytails and the kind of clothes look you kind of recognise. Really crisp white shirts, black jeans, silver bits on their boots, fancy tooled belts and turquoise jewellery. So I took my shot and I walked past them and then I paused to take some more. And then they started speaking, and it immediately grabbed my attention. So here's what I call. You were dead, yeah? Really dead? The other guy nodded. Someone shoots you, my friend, you usually get dead. 
The other guy laughed. So he gets his wish? The first guy nodded slowly. Yup, they bury him in Kuban soil. Yep, that's what happens. It don't matter where you die, they bring you back and you get a burial up with the big guys, whether you like it or not. The other guy nodded. Really? Buried with the big guys, wow. The taller guy pulled a face. Sure, they look after the party guys, even now, my friend. He was big in the movement, you know, back in the day. Big party guy. Fidel Castle, man, you hear what I'm saying? Fidel. I hear the guy's old man or family or something, or they're all tight with Fidel. So the deal is, they ship his body back from Caracas, I think Fortaleza, and this other guy, he say Bogota too. The other guy whistled. Whew, that's a long way, so much money, huh? Just because he was a party guy? His friend shrugged. Is how I'm saying it. They get to spend eternity in the soil of their home country. It's like a symbolic thing, you know, like the Aztecs and that shit. It's connections, you know, man. That's what I'm saying. Don't matter where. If the party say you come home, you come home. Cuba is the end destination no matter how bad you fuck up. It's like they ignore that other stuff, you know? You know Varga at the restaurant? Well, he say it's been gone on forever. The other guy scratched his head. But I don't get it. What's so important about it? You know, you're dead. Who cares what happens to your body? His friend shook his head. It's the party, man, right? They're saying we can get to you, dead or alive. And if you've been here with them, and even if you're thousands of miles away, they'll treat you with honor and shit and bring you back. Stick you in Cuban soil. Like a home kind or something, yeah? Marble grey, priests, the whole shit. You hear? The whole shit. The other guy took a deep breath, and he was lost in thought for a while. Fuck, man. I'd be lucky to get a wheelie bin. They both started laughing in that deep way that old friends do, and I carried on taking my pictures. And I left them laughing and leaning against the wall. The party, man. They're alive. Brilliant. This one actually stayed with me so much when I got back home, I googled for a while to kind of recall my hazy grasp of Cuban history, 1960, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Communist Party, Missile Crisis... And I thought of the two guys in the alleyway, just so far away from it all, talking about some dead guy, some guy being brought back to be buried in the soil he ran on when he was a child. And evidently somehow, somewhere, is still known to a ruling dictatorship. Yeah, the stuff you overhear. That's life in London sometimes. Well, I hope you like those, because people just amaze us all the time. So back to our little writing tip, we like to get them in now. And writing is like any other skill, it does need regular practice. And you'll also find the rhythm of writing, you get better when you kind of little set aside a time here and there and here and there. Try not to just dip in and out. Once you get into a regular pattern with writing, you find you can really get into whatever the piece that you're working on is. Now, Today's kind of idea is we want you to write the most memorable moment you had this month. And you can even collect them, you know, one day do one a month. And then by the end of the year, say, every month this happened to me. And it's like a little memory thing to look back on. 
So don't feel limited. Use 500 words, though, because we don't be writing novels unless you really want to. But give it a go. And remember that rule, shortness and brevity of sentence. That kind of focuses your mind. Give it a go. Go on. It's great fun. Well, it's time for the final story today, and a big warning here, because it's a horror story, just in case you're a bit faint-hearted. It's called The Call-Out. He liked the name, his new van shining after its wash, his newly stenciled logo, red and bold, Rapid Kill Solutions Pest Control. Kevin smiled at his reflection, the logo on his jacket matching the van. It'd been his June's idea, really, her encouraging him. He'd been at Fastkill for six years up until last month, and they'd been a good employer, fair and generous. But he'd felt he wasn't developing, not really. And then, sadly, June's gran had passed, and she'd been left a little money, and that's when they'd started talking. She'd been so brilliant, encouraging him, telling him he could do it. He'd married the right girl, and he knew it. Fast kill, well, they'd been brilliant about it. His boss, the old man, Mr Garnish, saying he'd been a very good employee and he wished him well. And June said, well, they had all the big council contracts, so they weren't worried about him. And they weren't. They were a really big company. Seven offices around the country and constantly advertising on the radio and in the papers. But now Kevin had to make a go of it. His own company. he put leaflets through hundreds of letterboxes last week and it had paid off. Three jobs. The last one being here at 35 Shawcross Avenue. Uh, Mrs Blakely. Cockroaches, she'd said. An infestation, she'd added. And Kevin nodded as he checked the back of the van. He had everything on board. And he'd sort it out before you could say Jack Robinson. His years of training at Fastkill standing him in really good stead. And he knew he could complete the task. You just had to follow the three stages. Quantify, identify, nullify. You see, it wasn't enough to find the pests, old Mr Garnish had said. You need to find what's attracting them. And once you've established that, then you can make a plan, set your traps, lay your bait and establish a kill zone. Quantify, identify, nullify. And Kevin knew the old man was an expert. Never underestimate the enemy, he'd say. They've been around a lot longer than we have. Plus, they'll still be here once we've idiots destroy the planet. And he'd set up Fastkill over 30 years before, and what he didn't know about pest eradication wasn't worth knowing. His sat-nav beeped. Great, he'd reached the destination. And he looked out and saw the house standing on a corner plot, three roads merging in front of it. And the woman that opened the front door looked to be in her fifties, slender and tall, very dark-skinned, striking too, a full black headscarf, her hair completely covered, and a long, thin black dress, clearly a religious lady of some kind, slightly anxious. Her face was hidden by a surgical face mask, clearly still worried about catching Covid. And he knew the look though, the posture. People weren't used to pests. It did something to them, their faces, and the fear he could read, the concern. And smiling, he held up his photo ID card on its lanyard around his neck. It was just like the ones Fastkill used, and it showed his picture and his qualifications. Always reassure the clients. 
That's what Mr. Garnish had said. Well, there were so many crooks about, but who could blame folk? And now he smiled and stepped inside, and she thanked him for coming so quickly and started talking immediately. Kevin now began calming her down, reassuring her, her tone still so anxious. It's cockroaches, she said, shuddering, her voice high and emotional. I came downstairs last night to get some milk, and I heard a kind of whispering noise. And as soon as I turned the light on, there they were, everywhere, scuttling around. She looked around her now nervously. There were lots of them. Uh, how many, he ventured. And she pulled her face. Fifty at least, more probably. And then she grimaced. I screamed and I grabbed a broom and I tried to hit them and they all just scurried off. So I'm afraid I just closed the door and ran back upstairs and it was just awful. I didn't sleep a wink. And you know, when I came down this morning, they'd all gone. But they must be still here, somewhere, hiding. I just know it. He listened for a few more seconds, putting on his concerned face. Fifty. More like five. He'd heard this before. People always exaggerated. Fifty. He looked at the hard marble floor, the crisp white walls, the smell of cleaning polish heavy in the air. This was just not the place any self-respecting pest would want to come. Clean and hard. No dirt or food waste anywhere. This wasn't cockroach territory, if indeed it was cockroaches. But all the same, he started his inspection and he looked for the usual clues. Droppings, shell cases. But the house was immaculate. In fact, it was so clean, it was a wonder she had any problems at all. Most pest incursions needed a food source. This place was almost surgically clean and warm too. He looked puzzled. Was there anywhere he hadn't seen, he said. And the woman suddenly looked troubled briefly. Oh, I forgot about the cellar, she said. I don't use it. Not, not since my poor husband, well, she trailed off. He passed some years ago and her eyes were now full of sadness. He was used to dealing with things like that and he looked away, embarrassed now by her grief. He didn't really know what to say, but she turned and opened a small door under the stairs and now he peered inside. It was a big cellar, dark and unused. And as far as he could see, it was empty apart from one small wooden crate his bright torch lighting the gloom. And now he went down a few steps, shining the beam around him, her following halfway down the stairs, still obviously too nervous to come down. It was very tidy, although a little dusty, unlike the rest of the house. He could see a metal drain cover sunk into the floor. Now he stood and closed his eyes. Look, listen, sense. Old Mr. Garnish had been very keen on all of them using all their senses. Yes, there. It was a smell, very slight, but unmistakable, almost sweet. His nose, a finely tuned instrument. Rotting meat. He'd encountered it before many times. Drains, probably backed up, potentially even blocked. Standard stuff, really. And he wrote onto his notepad, and then he gestured to her they should return back upstairs. If it's all the same, I'd just like to do a wide perimeter search, he said, his manner still calm and reassuring. 
it won't take me more than 10 minutes. It's just standard procedure, really. And she nodded, and he went out through the front door, and after circling the house, inspecting the walls, there were no cracks or holes or food sources. He went a little way down the short driveway, and he looked right and left. There was a small row of shops, some 50 yards up along the way, and now he smiled and nodded to himself, and slowly wandered up towards them, noting their generally shabby appearance. They all looked a little run down, a bit shabby. Ah, bingo, he thought. There, in the middle of them, a small butcher shop, obviously one that had seen better days, and the windows didn't look too clean. And there was a badly written cardboard sign with offers on it, cheap meat and the like. He looked back down the street. Yes. Then he saw the manhole cover, and he followed its line to the next one he'd passed on his way up. It was the sewer drains. Probably aligned. He'd seen it before with these kind of shops, fast food ones usually. They would just dump stuff straight into the drain and it clogged the sewers. The famous fatbergs of clumps of oil and food waste. Massive and greasy plugs in effect. Yeah, this was probably that. It would explain the odour. And a food source. Hmm. This was a simple one. He'd just clean out the drain section in the cellar with his jet wash, spray some acid disinfectant and poison powder, drop a note to the local compliance department, maybe get the butcher shop looked at by trading and standards. Job done. Problem solved. She was waiting for him when he returned, and he lifted his two gear bags inside. And now she offered him tea, which he accepted. Always good to give the anxious clients something to do. It kept them away from under your feet, old Mr Garnish used to say. And now he pulled the small cellar door open and went back down the stairs, pre-plugging his extension into a power socket he'd noticed in the hallway. The stairs slightly creaked at his weight and that of his gear. No one had been down here in ages, he thought. And now he paused as he heard a kind of whispering noise. But then it stopped, him remembering Mrs Blakely's description. It was probably just the wind under the door frame. And now, stepping onto the dusty concrete floor, he scanned the area, and slowly he pulled on his gear, his heavy gloves, the knee pads, his face shield and helmet, his helmet torch now fully coming into play. He looked around. No, there was nothing. There were no signs anywhere, although that wasn't necessarily a sign. Cockroaches were clever little buggers, incredible insects, really intelligent. Old Mr Garnish used to laugh and say they were smarter than half the planet, and one day they'd adapt and organise and identify their enemy, and then there'd be trouble. But he'd always said it was finding food, that was their main preoccupation. Give them enough of it, and they would take over. Kevin smiled to himself. The boss. He really was a wonderful man. He was full of useful information and interesting opinions. And Kevin sighed, but now he was on his own, his own small company. But it was going to be fine, because he'd been trained by the best. The old man had been a real true mentor. Now, grunting slightly, he pulled the drain cover up and back. The smell, ah yes, now a little stronger. And he peered into the void, looking in both directions, his head torch illuminating instantly. It was pretty wide, around three feet across it is best guess, and there was a large pool of dark water, 
right at the bottom in the curve. But still, it looked pretty clean for a sewer. Unusually so, he thought. But then he remembered the position of the house and the corner positioning. Ah, this was probably a larger spur of the main sewer. And that would be roughly, by his reckoning, around 60 feet away. So the water pressure was probably strong enough to wash everything through. But that then slightly blew his theory about the butcher shop. Hmm, tricky. He peered again, the smell slightly stronger. And now behind him, he heard Mrs Blakely. Anything? Can you see anything? And she spoke again, her voice now oddly muffled, probably the surgical face mask. And Kevin reached down and out with his gloved hand and he touched the thick concrete wall. It was warm. And he glanced back over his shoulder. <laughs> that was strange. Mrs Blakely looked taller. No, no, he said, it's nothing. I just need to get a better look. And now he began to wriggle forwards reaching down into the pool of water with his thick gloves and began to feel around. Ah, he thought, there was something. And now lifting up, he suddenly yelled out. It was a human arm bone and hand, white and gleaming, fleshless, and he stared at it. He could see it had a bunch of photo ID cards on nylon lanyards. Fast kill, bet death, rat away, bug killers, with various smiling faces of men. What, what, what the hell? These were all local pest control companies. And still holding the arm, he now desperately tried to push himself back out the drain, when to his surprise, he felt himself being pushed downwards, something heavy now gripping his legs, and a searing pain cut through him, and he gasped out loud, his helmet now dropping from his head. And then the loud hissing started the torch bouncing off the concrete bottom, now illuminating the heaving black wall of thousands of cockroaches as they whisperingly stream forwards in a black river towards him, their scuttling legs fast on the hot and dry concrete. And he struggled to move back, twisting his neck and his head agonisingly painfully, his ID now dropping into the water, and he shouted for help. The fear now giving him much more strength. And somehow he managed to almost pull himself up and out. And now twisting, he saw Mrs Blakely's face. And it seemed to expand in front of his eyes. The headdress and the surgical mask tearing away. And now she stood there, revealed. Her black carapace, her pin black multiple eyes, her gleaming black antenna and a set of huge serrated jaws that now snapped back and forth and downwards, the first puncturing his lungs in a savage arc, and the rushing insects reached him and dragged him into the sewer in a biting, twisting, swirling mass, his screams now muffled as they agonisingly filled his mouth in a spiky, cutting, biting torrent. And old Mr Garnish's words rang, probably the last thought he had, They'd identified their enemy, and now they'd adapted and organised, and it was time to eat. Now, as ever, there's brand new story episodes popping in all the time, and you can find us on lots of different platforms. And, of course, social media platforms. Try and give us a thumbs up, give us a like, give us a follow.
Do remember, tell your friends about it and tune in every week because we promise you there's going to be something for everyone. And as we normally say, today's Hope the World is Hope the World lets you meet someone kind today. Bye now. Thank you.